You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good afternoon, everyone. Hopefully you can hear me okay. Great. First, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on Gadigal and Eora country and pay respect on behalf of our group to Gadigal people, Gadigal practices, and Gadigal knowledges past, present, and emerging. My name is Killian Quigley, and I'm a postdoc at the Sydney Environment Institute here at the University of Sydney. We're here today to hear from and converse with Steve Mentz, who I'll introduce a bit more fully in just a moment. But before that, though, a word on this afternoon's happenings. Immediately after Steve's lecture, we'll have a conversation in this room together before relocating to the courtyard bar at the home building. Most or all of you will know where that is, but for anybody who doesn't, it's just east of us on Science Road toward the quadrangle, if that makes sense. And there'll be people around to, uh, to lead the way, heroically anyway. The courtyard will be the scene of a performance by baptism, which if I'm correct, is not exactly the same thing as saying that it will be the scene of a baptism um, but maybe it's not altogether a different thing either. You'll see for yourselves. After the performance, there'll be refreshments in the courtyard bar. So blue humanities, blue cultural studies, critical ocean studies, thalassography, the new oceanic turn. If any of these are familiar to you, you'll be familiar with the work of Steve Mentz, professor of English at St. John's University in New York. A decade ago, Steve published At the Bottom of Shakespeare's Ocean, a book that, in tandem with numerous of its contemporaries, like Elizabeth de Lowry's Routes and Roots and Margaret Cohen's The Novel and the Sea, refreshed the trajectories of maritime and marine literary studies. In 2015, appeared Steve's Shipwreck Modernity, Ecologies of Globalization, 1550 to 1719, which not only thickened understandings of the maritime aspects of early globalization and the globalizing energies of early modern maritime cultures, but articulated through the figure of shipwreck a lastingly useful model of oceanic agency. With shipwrecks and their narratives, Steve showed how, to, how a contingent Western version of modernity was not only constituted on, across, and through oceans, but by them. And I know I speak for more than a few colleagues when I say that Steve's newest marine inquiry, pithily titled Ocean, from the Bloomsbury Object Lessons series, is anticipated with real excitement. That book emerges in March of next year, accompanied by illustrations from Vanessa Dawes and endorsements from Stacey Alamo Philip Hoare, and, and this is truly remarkable, Lynn Cox. For oceanic sensibility, I don't know how the book could have fared better. Narrating Steve's work in this way, I'm flying past many and varied other works of scholarship. And before I finish, I think it bears saying further that these works are nodes in Steve's broader and tireless practice of promoting and enabling the achievements of his international networks of colleagues, 
not least students and early career folks, but also writers, artists, and activists beyond the university. A month ago, I had the chance to meet with Steve's students at St. John's in Queens, and what I observed even more distinctly than the acuity of their literary readings and the ambition of their developing research projects was the traffic taking place among their lived experiences of the aquatic, their concern for the present and for futures of oceanic health, and their investigations of marine cultures across places and times. In that classroom, during a stroll along Newtown Creek later that afternoon, and just yesterday, in conversation with an eastern blue groper two or three meters below the surface of Clavelli Inlet, I was getting to know not only an expert in, but an advocate for, and lover of, seas and the things they do. Please join me in welcoming Steve Mentz. Wow, that, that was um, just an extraordinary um, introduction. I feel really, uh, you know, I have, I have a lot to live up to um, over the next, <laughs> the next hour, and it's such, a, such an incredible privilege and pleasure to be here. Um, I am um, incredibly excited to participate in the work of the Sydney Environmental Institute to think with oceanic spaces in this incredible oceanic city, um, and to have been, even just for the last maybe 36 hours since I arrived, um, you know, feeling immersed in the way in which this city faces uh, the, the salt water. Um, it's been a strange and wonderful time for me, uh, partly because this is actually my second trip to Sydney from the far off reaches of New York and, and the northeastern United States. I came here the year after I graduated from college in the um, October of 1989, so 30 years ago. And I've had this strange experience, particularly yesterday on Coogee Beach, which was the beach I lived nearest when I was here um, as a young man. I've had this weird sense of uh, seeing or feeling the, the presence of my earlier self sort of walking along beside me, um, a little bit confused and disoriented and not knowing where uh, life was going to take me. Um, so I'm incredibly pleased uh, to be here, to have my life have taken me back to this place and to be able to share some of my work and my um, particular kinds of uh, scholarship and obsessions and personal engagement with the ocean with you guys in this forum. So I'm really um, so pleased that everybody made it uh, here inside on this beautiful afternoon. Scalar disjunction defines the central image of the solitary swimmer in the planet-girdling ocean. The small human thing appears tiny, unless you have a close-up slide, I guess, um, but this body, like the fluid in which it floats, is itself around two-thirds salt water. This image and the experience of oceanic immersion represent the physical and metaphorical challenge of bridging the disconnect between individual and environment, weather and climate, human and world. My talk this afternoon is going to start with this picture of me, which was taken um, uh, in a photo taken by my daughter, uh, I think about a year and a half ago, uh, in my home Atlantic waters of Long Island Sound, about 16,000 kilometers away from here. I use this image to focus my thinking about Anthropocene swimming and about immersive, excuse me, immersive speculation in today's climate emergency. I remember the buoyancy of immersion in salt water 
and I want to capture some of that acrid flavor in my words today. The basic, basic claim of this talk, and also of much of the work that I've been doing um, in the last several years, is that ocean swimming can serve as an embodied ecological meditation and a prompt for critical thinking in the Anthropocene. I'd like ocean swimming to also prompt meaningful collective action, and I'll make some suggestions toward that of still incomplete part of this project over the course of the day. Oceanic immersion teaches through feeling. In touching the great waters, we feel something. I'm thinking here both about physical sensation and also about the oceanic feeling as it's been rhapsodized by poets and psychologists and um, writers of tourists, brochures, among other, among other people. Feeling of and for the ocean lures us into the water and sometimes frightens us away. Swimming is only a semi-natural practice for terrestrial humans. At our best, we engage the water slowly, awkwardly, and at considerable personal risk. Western literary culture in its earliest stages confined swimming only to superheroic figures such as Beowulf or Odysseus, whose exceptional prowess emphasizes the inability of most humans to survive in water for periods of time. The rise of oceanic swimming as a popular recreation in the second half of the 20th century has changed the relationship between humans and the ocean. In plunging our body into an inhospitable element, we encounter an alien presence, soothing and dangerous at the same time. Swimming has a history, as I'll suggest later, but that history points incessantly forward into our changing environmental present. The Blue Humanities, which also has a series of other names that Killian helpfully introduced a, a minute ago, uh, names an effort by academics and others to engage with the oceanic environs of our planet's living surface. And this is just a little clip from a short definition I wrote, wrote about the Blue Humanities for the Post-Human Glossary um, last year. Swimming occupies a key node in this network as a place of intimate contact and risk. The long human history of swimming ranges from the so-called aquatic ape hypothesis, which argues that Homo sapiens developed at least in part in a uh, aqueous environment to the superhuman prowess of athletes such as Lynn Cox and Ian Thorpe. Together, these episodes tell a story of love and practice. A little known but essential text for Anglophone swimmers is Everard Digby's 1587 How to Swim Manual, uh, De Art Natandi. And this is an, uh, actually not a, an image of the cover of Digby's book, but of a 1983 book that um, includes the modern, the standard modern edition of it, but the illustration is from Digby. Diart Natande pictures swim, humans swimming like dogs, frogs, ships, and dolphins, and I'll show a few more pictures over the course of today. Literary depictions of swimming range from Homer and Shakespeare to contemporary swim memoirs, several of which I'll discuss today, from the shipwrecked swims of Odysseus and Robinson Crusoe to the immersive poetry of Lord Byron and Walt Whitman Swimming captures the visceral human experience of environmental alienation. The swimmer's entrance into great waters embraces ecological uncertainty. The ocean swimmer captures environmental risk and human vulnerability. These experiences are coming increasingly to define the human relationship with our Anthropocene environment. 
My swim thinking has been developing recently through collaborations with academics, artists, surfers, swimmers, and assorted other watery fellow travelers, and perhaps most intensely with several bodies of water, uh, most recently Coogee Beach and the baths at Watson's Bay just a few hours ago. Keeping for now just to people who I've swum with in salt water, um, some, some but not all of whose work I'll discuss in this talk, I'll mention my debts to the inspiring and immersive work of Vanessa Dawes, Mar Mariana Dudley, Stacey Alemo, Lowell Dukert, Jeffrey Cohen, and Joanna Croft. In today's talk, I'll also explore contemporary swim writing um, by Charles Sprosson, Leanne Shapton, James Hamilton Patterson, Lynn Cox, and Philip Hoare. Since at bottom I remain a historicist and my day job involves teaching Shakespeare, I'll also return repeatedly to the 16th century and to Digby's book, published when he was a fellow at St. John's College in Cambridge. The project of mixing all these writers and swimmers together and of bringing into contact both my archival and my immersive practices will amount to an attempt to flesh out what I've for a while been calling a swimmer poetics. To devise, to, to, excuse me, to devise a critical, poetic, and active language for immersion, I'm planning to follow the old Wordsworthian song in which we half create and while we also perceive the environment around us. But I'm also suspicious of Wordsworth's lovely romantic vision for what it excludes and what it occludes. I don't want just to be guided by the things that are easiest to see. One of the best things about swimming, to my mind, one of the reasons I think swimming is productive of critical thought, is its fundamental sensory deprivation. The extreme swimmer Diana Nyad, the only person to have swum without a shark cage, shark cage between Cuba and the United States, observes that swimming's senselessness provides space for a particular kind of physical meditation. We can't hear or see or smell very much with our faces underwater. The vast salt universe resolves into an acrid taste and encompassing touch. Perception narrows into feeling, and that feeling expands as far as we can think it, or perhaps farther. The central term, as the slide shows, or at least the initial term for swimmer poetics is in fact feeling, as in both the physical feeling of salt water on bare skin and also the oceanic feelings and speculations that emerge from immersion. Many of the modern writers who I'll discuss emphasize feel for the water as the special talent of skilled swimmers. As a supplement to swimming, I'll also talk today about form as a means of surviving and thriving in an alien environment. The interplay between feeling and form represents the heart of swimmer poetics. I'll be splashing back and forth today between the late 16th and the early 21st centuries to provide some examples of how feel for the water and laboring forms can characterize swimming as a symbolic and also practical way of thinking in and thinking and being in the Anthropocene. In conclusion, I will translate my feeling form binary into two more outward facing terms, experience and allegory, that provide suggestions of how this project might move away from the water into literary and cultural uh, studies writ large. But before I get too deep into uh, the particular text that I'm going to be talking about today, I want to start by identifying a baseline condition that I su suspect this particular audience knows extremely well. Um, everybody in this room probably already knows that we are all bodies of water. 
Um, I first met Astrida Namanis uh, just last year in Brooklyn, um, and whose book is obviously up here on the slide, uh, beside the toxic waters of Newtown Creek, where I also recently went hiking with Killian. Um, but of course, you and Sydney are fortunate to have her uh, here every day. Um, Namanis' work connects swimmers' feelings to the philosophical tradition um, of phenomenology. How do we understand what we feel when we experience our aqueous environment and our aqueous flesh? I've got a few animating thoughts that I'm going to um, provide about that feeling. Um, when we dare to averse, immerse our small bodies in the globe's watery skin, we feel something. Nothing like control or mastery, but rather a physical intuition or connection, a faint reminder, a planetary tug that suggests that one's own water-filled flesh also has tides, also responds to the moon's gravitational embrace, also swims in fluid connections atop a nearly spherical rock in the void. I can't yet name Astrid and Amanis among my swimming companions because the weather was cold in Brooklyn when uh, we met last year and the waters of Newtown Creek are toxic and I had, haven't yet caught up through it with her in Sydney this week. Um, but her eco-feminist phenomenology splashes alongside and really has inspired much of what I'll be talking about today. As she observes in her book, um, an essential project in our increasingly threatened environment will be to learn to swim. It's a particular project for coastal living in an era of sea level rise. And in some ways, the talk today and the larger project from which this talk is drawn is really an attempt to literalize the metaphor that um, Namanis' book provides for us. What might it mean to learn to swim in the unfriendly and polluted waters of rising Anthropocene seas? So I'm going to start with Charles Sprawson. The lineup of modern swimmers begins with the slightly mad Charles Sprawson, author of the wonderfully enthusiastic book Haunts of the Black Monsieur, published first in 92 and then reissued in 2000. And the, the cover there is from the 2000 Minnesota Press edition. My key quotation from Sprawson's book, however, is actually not him speaking. It's instead a quotation from the Australian Olympic freestyler uh, Murray Rose. And there's a picture of Murray Rose in, in Bondi Beach from a few years ago. Um, and this is what Rose says about swimming. The physical quality demanded for a swimmer is feel for the water. He should use his arms and legs as a fish his fins and be able to feel the pressure of the water on his hands, to hold it in his palm as he pulls the stroke through without allowing it to slip through his fingers. Rose's precise fantasy of pulling water through human hands with no slippage is physically impossible. But I suspect I'm not the only person in this room who's had this particular advice pressed on me by a competitive swim coach once upon a time. I read Rose's maxim here as if it was a, kind, a work of critical theory, as well as an Olympian's musings about what makes him so particularly fast. Feeling the water makes a swimmer more efficient, smoother, with less evidence of effort, but more speed. The practice that Rose imagines builds on a fantasy of integration between humans and water. I think about that fantasy every time I try to swim fast, um, as I did on my next to last 100 meters this morning in the Victoria Park pool, when my arms pull back through the water, and the water does its best to spread my fingers apart 
to spill itself through my outstretched hands and decrease my forward progress. I grabbed the water, but I couldn't catch it. Both the other swimmers in the lane this morning were significantly faster than me. Back to Sprossen. Sprossen's book emphasizes the mystical and heroic elements of water feeling. His swimmer is a determined individualist who practices a lonely, meditative labor that resembles a continuous dream of a life underwater. Sprossen traces sea mysticism from classical poetry to romantic figures such as Algernon Swinburne, who rhapsodizes that to feel that in deep water is to feel as long as one is swimming out as if one was in another world of life. Sprossen's book idiosyncratically mixes the words of Olympic champions, poets, and his own experiences to pursue the ichthyosaurus ego imagined by John Cooper Puiz and the immersive figures of pagan myth conjured by Rupert Brooke. The Black Monsieur of Sprossen's enigmatic title, which reference he never clarifies in the text, alludes to a shockingly racist story by Tennessee Williams in which a weak white man enters into violent and ultimately fatal erotic communion with the powerful black monsieur. The water's touch combines ecstasy with disturbing violence. Sprossen's eagerness launches my discussion of swimmer poetics, um, but his enthusiasm for aquatic solitude and isolation, really a romantic isolation, moves in sometimes in painful directions. Um, Sprossen's most recent work, which uh, a BBC radio, and not really his work, a work about him, uh, was a BBC radio uh, program uh, that debuted in January of this year, uh, which provides a kind of melancholy description and interview with the aging swimmer as he falls into dementia, um, trapped in a dry facility in, in England and isolated from the sea. The second swimmer is Digby, here doing a particularly elegant form of the backstroke. In addition to feeling, we need form. To make an argument for form in the practice of immersion, I'm going to turn back the clock several centuries to look at the awkward and impractical e e examples proffered by Digby in De Art Natandi. Digby's text speaks to a surge of new interest in swimming in early modern Europe. In the ancient Mediterranean world, as Nic Nicholas Orme notes in his uh, Essential History, Early British Swimming, which I had a slide of earlier, Swimming had been, for a time, primarily a survival skill and also a military skill, a way of moving armies across rivers and other bodies of water. Early modern Europe saw a flood of new interest in swimming that was motivated by several sources. Orm points to new and revised translations of ancient and biblical texts that made them appear a little bit less hostile to water. Um, he also points to the surge in maritime trade and travel as elements that contributed to reinvigorating swimming as both metaphor and practice. It's one of the reasons I think you do see a fair amount of swimming in Renaissance literary texts. Um, encounters with African, Native American, and Pacific Islander communities who included strong swimmers and cultural traditions of immersion also impressed European sailors and adventurers, in particular when they established pearl fisheries and other maritime colonial projects. Digby's De Art Natande, which was translated into English by Christopher Middleton at, under the title A Short Introduction for to Learn to Swim in 1595, represents swimming as a formal, trainable skill, 
suitable for young gentlemen being educated at Cambridge. In a dedicatory epistle written to Master Simon Smith, Middleton, Digby's translator, described swimming as among commendable exercises tending to profitable ends. The main text uh, emphasizes the value of swimming in the preserving of a man's life and also to purge the skin from all external pollutions or uncleanness. The outstanding feature of both Digby's and Middleton's book, and they're also reprinted in Orm's edition, um, including on the cover, are the multiple woodcut illustrations, like the one you see here, uh, that demonstrate different styles of swimming and multiple aquatic maneuvers. Humans even exceed fish in Digby's understanding because of our felicity in diving down to the deepest waters and bring, fetching from thence whatever is there sunk down. The swimmer performs miracles of art and mobility, sitting, tumbling, leaping, walking, mimicking the features of a ship at sea, a dog, and even a dolphin. Among uniquely human abilities, Digby notes our capacity for swimming upon the back, as we see here, a gift which, Digby says, nature has denied even to the watery inhabitants of the sea. I was thinking about that exact question of do aquatic animals swim on their backs. Um, uh, earlier yesterday at Clovelly Inlet, when I was diving down to scare through my goggles into the placid eyes of a blue groper that Killian has already described for us, what does the fish see in me, I wonder? Treating a male human body as the measure of all things is a traditional Renaissance affectation, and we see Digby performing that affectation here. But Digby's intimate portrait of how bodies engage with watery environments also gestures toward an, a growing awareness of swimming as an art and also as an experience. Digby, as I said earlier, was a fellow at St. John's College, Cambridge, and the images in his book, including this one, uh, seemed to resemble local aquatic haunts along the River Cam. He was not, as far as we can tell, an, a saltwater swimmer. Ocean swimming as a recreational practice didn't primarily arrive on British shores until around the 18th century, during which time the French historian Alain Corbin has documented the rapid expansion of the sea bathing fashion out of a therapeutic objective. Swimmers, often women, were dunked into cold sea water in order to quickly rebalance bodily humors. Global beach tourism, underwater photography, scuba, and surf culture in the 20th century would make more intimate the lived relationship between humans and the sea. But sea level rise and warming-fueled storms today suggest that the 21st century desire to live and play near the shore is coming into conflict with the dynamic instabilities of environmental crisis. Turning back to the 21st century brings us back to feeling. Leanne Shapton emphasizes in her book that she was not a real Olympic swimmer, but only went as far as the Olympic trials for Canada in 1988 and 1992. Her book, Swimming Studies, published in 2012, traces the scar of her competitive career into a life of recreational, recreational immersion around the world. I still dream of practice, she writes of races, coaches, and blurry competitors. Her studies of swimming also include watercolor sketches, and there's a, one of the series of sketches that she does. In both the images and the prose, 
Shapton tries to get out what swimming feels like, and also to a certain extent in, the, in these what it looks like. Um, we, when a human body submerges itself in water, we feel disorientation and buoyancy, which transform, transform themselves into vulnerability and sometimes also into power or strength. We can't live in water, but we love being in water. Shapton explains that she feels her body acutely in the water. That physical feeling forms for her a kind of understanding. It's a knowledge of watery space, being able to sense exactly where my body is and what it's affecting, an animal empathy for contact with an element. Shapton's phrase, animal empathy, suggests both that feel for the water is a fellow feeling or connection between human and element, and also that that kind of a bond is fundamentally not all that human. Later in the book, describing her many years of elite competition, she writes, watching a good swimmer is the visual equivalent of petting a dog's smooth head, something naturally, wondrously sweet and perfect. The physical ease with which fast swimmers cleave the water must be, as Shapton understands it, animal in the most positive sense, physical, unfettered, unselfconscious. Here, she continues, my mind is the plus one. Swimming represents pure physicality. Thinking, as opposed to swimming, is the excess, the thing that can be left behind. Digby swimmers aren't as good at swimming as Shapton is. Um, the Cambridge Humanist's core claim asserts a familiar pedagogical argument about exercise and self-improvement. And there are definitely times in looking at Digby's book when it's easy to see that the affect of the college professor hasn't changed that much from 1587 to 2019. Um, swimming, Digby insists, re resembles dancing, fencing, and horsemanship as ways to train unruly bodies to obey controlling wills. Digby starts with simple strokes and gradually introduces more complex maneuvers, such as this image of a man swimming with his hands together in front of him. To swim according to this model, this model means to train one's animal body to do what it's told in an unfamiliar environment. Digby swimmers don't seem to be very good swimmers, but their awkwardness is a helpful reminder of how out of place terrestrial mammals are in aqueous environments. When we think today about humans who are often swimmers, we tend to think of skilled practitioners such as Shapton um, or Murray Rose, but maybe we should also be reminded of Dim's, Digby's clumsy paddlers. For some swim writers, including James Hamilton Patterson, the out of placeness of humans in water becomes a romantic trope and also a vision of the world. James Hamilton Patterson, who's an English writer whose passion for water drew, drew him to spend an entire year living alone in the middle of the sea, and that's in the book Playing with Water, which is one you can see on the right of that image, um, living on an uninhabited island in the Philippines. Um, he also sees the hypocrite swimmer primarily as a vision of dissolution. He has only existed as three-tenths, says Hamilton Patterson, and that fraction is melting into water. Feeling, as Hamilton Patterson describes it, brings together the, the, brings physical sensation together with an intuitive grasp of being inside of vastness and motion. 
Swimming means feeling the hyperobject ocean against bare skin. As our Anthropocene environment grows more dynamic and unsettled as the seas rise, the swimmer's practice of partial order amid constant threats may become, may usefully become a dream of partial and perhaps also temporary accommodation. For Hamilton Patterson, that immersive practice represents a biological and a historical return. The swimmer for him is a kind of physical philosopher, spanning words with flesh and practice. And this is Hamilton Patterson at a little bit more length. The illusory line separating air from water, dividing the lighter swirl of molecules from the denser, merely compounds the fiction of two worlds dwelling apart, the one inimical to the other. Yet what could be better proof of their radical contiguity than the gallant life force pervading both? Not in a mystical sense either, but because life originated from below, some of it adapting to permanent exile and some of it staying put. We are colonials. What we have in common with our ancestors is the sea, not the air. Throughout Hamilton Patterson's memoir, Seven Tenths, which is the other book up on the slide, um, he comes back repeatedly to an inset story of a swimmer, presumably Hamilton Patterson himself, who comes up from snorkeling and has lost his boat and begins to fear, fear that he may drown. Um, the fear that the swimmer feels includes both a fear of death, but also more centrally, it appears to be a fear of dissolution. His entire body is dissolving, Hamilton Patterson writes, playing on, as he does in the title, with the roughly 70% of our planet's surface that is covered with water and the roughly 70%, or maybe a little less, of our bodies that is comprised of water, Hamilton Patterson seeks the wet visionary encounter. He may get there, but he can't keep what he finds. Not being fish, he writes, we mourn things, the present especially. The salt touch lingers, but eventually dries. By imitating animals, including dogs and dolphins, Digby's swimmer departs from the human standard. This close-up of a man entering waist-deep water visually shows the rupture within classical human identity caused by immersion. The water, or sorry, the body in water appears only partly human, as, I, as he seems to me at least to be uh, in the process of imitating a dog. Uh, entering the watery element entails leaving terrestrial human bodies and practices at least partly and temporarily behind. Swimming makes this man appear dog-like, awkward, and out of place in his surroundings. So to follow Digby's doggy paddle image uh, with another writer from the present, I wanted to include an elite athlete among my swim writers. Um, and since I was in Australia, um, I read this guy's book. Um, and in the end, although I was really intrigued by the surprisingly poetic opening pages of Ian Thorpe's 2012 comeback memoir, This Is Me, um, I decided against using it as one of my primary examples today. Um, I do love the image of the opening pages in which the Olympic champion explains that every time he gets into a new pool, he floats for a minute and tries to work out how the water wants to hold me. Much of the book, once you get past the opening few pages, um, and I don't know where the dividing line is between Thorpe's writing and the um, um, and his uh, uh, you know the writer who he contracted to help him write the book lies, um, but much of the book is about technicalities and training techniques. Um, 
to, to explore elite swimmers who are also writers, I'm going to instead take as my example the American cold water specialist and best-selling author Lynn Cox. Um, she's most famous uh, in the book Swimming to Antarctica for swimming between the United States and the Soviet Union in the Bering Sea in 1987, a, a swim that was at least as complicated politically as it was physically. Um, and she's also got a cluster of first crossings in her resume from the Cape of Good Hope to Antarctica. The text I'm going to touch on today, though, is not her, her first memoir, but her second book, which you can just barely see on the slide, uh, Grayson, which was published in 2006. The story of Grayson is just one morning's adventure that happened to her when she was a teenager uh, training as an open water swimmer in Southern California. Uh, in, on a, and she helped a gray whale calf find um, her mother, find his mother. Um, like Shapton and Hamilton Patterson, though with, with less self-conscious literary art than either, Cox describes in this story her swimming self, her swimming body, functioning as a kind of a bridge between humans and the marine world. She starts in darkness at 5 a.m. off Seal Beach, swimming on pace, moving at about 60 strokes per minute, etching a small silvery groove across the wide black ocean. In this featureless world, the gray whale's son, whose name she later anthropomizes into Grayson for her title, um, becomes her swimming companion and attaches himself to her. You can't swim to shore, a, a fisherman friend admonishes her. If you swim to shore, he'll follow you and he'll be stranded. He'll run aground. The scenario extends the imitation of marine creatures that Digby includes in his volume uh, into an act of immersive human and non-human collaboration. Cox swims with the cub whale Grayson until his massive mother eventually returns. The shared swim between human and baby whale represents a fleeting oceanic connection. Treading water, Cox writes, I watch the baby whale. I couldn't take my eyes off of him. In an adventure story that features sea turtles, Pacific sunfish, jellyfish, dolphins, fishermen, spectators on the, on the pier, and losing and finding whales both large and small, Cox inverts the human versus Leviathan plot of Moby Dick. The swimmer posits an emotional connection to the whale. I believe we would find Grayson's mother in the vast ocean. When Grayson at last swims off with his mother, they vanish forever, growing smaller and smaller by the minute as the sea expanded behind him. In what becomes half parable and also echoes the language of a children's book, and the book has become very popular with um, sort of middle grade readers in the United States at least, um, Cox's Grayson represents a kind of happy fantasy of an ideal encounter between human and ocean that's probably only possible if you're able to swim quite fast for several hours in frigid salt water. Our last stop, stop with Digby is going to be this particularly crazy image. Um, he's looking here not even a little bit like Ian Thorpe or Lynn Cox, but instead looking quite awkward with his sort of backward entrance into the water as well. Um, Elite athletes rely on their carefully perfected form to move their bodies efficiently through the water. Their examples remind us that learning to swim requires mastering bodily techniques that do not work on land. Th these are th there are things we can do in the water that we cannot do in land. 
And by contrast to that elite practice of competitive swimmers, this final image from Digby extends the idea of uh, acting in the water in a frankly ludicrous direction. Uh, the description here is uh, of a man floating on his back, brandishing a knife, and paring his toes in the water. It's a ludicrous picture. There's no clear reason why the man should choose to cut his toenails in the water. Um, Digby is an evangelist for the things one can do if you learn to swim, and this is a really weird one. Uh, <laughs> uh, even if he wishes to soak his nails to soften them before cutting, which maybe makes sense if what you're cutting, with, cutting your toenails with is a knife, um, a bucket would seem a much better and more practical uh, tool than the river. Um, all of us who know a little bit about trying to do things when you're floating in the water uh, will recognize that pairing one's toes with a knife seems both impractical and probably fairly dangerous. And I've actually been thinking for a while that um, I really need to try it and make sure that there's not some secret that I don't understand. But, but I think that, that if I tried it in my local community pool or in my local beach at home, people would be a little worried and, and, and not, not very happy with me. Um, so I haven't tried it yet, but my, my assumption is it's, it's pretty impractical. Um, the image makes me wonder in part about how much water you experienced Digby really had. Um, and also, it makes me wonder that some of the images are not fruits of practice per se, but fantasies, ideas about what might be pos possible if one continued to become um, habituated to being in water. My next to last modern swimmer is the English memoirist Philip Hoare, who also describes very much a life being habituated to water. Um, I will deep, dip briefly into the massive over 1,200 pages of his recently completed trilogy of sea mem memoirs, Leviathan or the Whale, published in 2008, The Sea Inside, published in 2013, and most recently, Rising Tide, Falling Star, In Search of the Soul of the Sea, published in 2018. But at the risk of seeming to scant this really substantial achievement of these uh, you know, 1,200 pages of oceanic prose, I'm going to start thinking about horror by way of his Twitter feed. Um, horror writes basically daily about his swimming practice. And his, the, the record of his Twitter account, at Philip Whale, is an austere and beautiful record of a man's obsession with salt water. The poetics, if you will, of at Philip Whale um, represent, in some ways, in what seems to me a purer form even than the three fat sea memoirs, the physical encounter between human body and oceanic depth. This is just a random selection of uh, the early part of October. Um, there were actually some really beautiful ones in the last two days that if I'd wanted to like go back and put into my slide, I, I would have, they're, they're, they're sort of equally excellent. So I, I strongly recommend at Philip Whale to the Twitter users in the audience. Um, a pre-dawn swimmer, and also sometimes a, you know, sort of a midnight or 2 a.m. swimmer, who chronicles his turns in the sea in darkness, as you see here, with careful attention to both texture and feeling. Um, here's a representative, particularly sort of couplet-like image from the 7th of October, um, 6 a.m., hard, sharp land, soft, dark sea, same as it ever was, I know where I'd rather be. 
the C B rhyme, and also on other mornings the C me rhyme. That's actually appears in uh, October 6th and several times since then as well, punctuates the opposition and the attraction between land and sea, past and present, human body, and oceanic space. The sea represents to whore a kind of temporal and physical unity, a place to be, a place to prefer, and a place to return night after night after morning. Like many writers, including me, I suspect that Hoare has arrived at social media both because his publishers like him to be noticed and also because Twitter provides him a kind of a five-finger warm-up exercise for his more sustained efforts. The experience of immersion, the obsessive subject of the tweets, receives more determined analysis in books like The Sea Inside, in which Hoare writes, and here I'm, I'm quoting from The Sea Inside, the seed defines us, connects us, separates us. Most of us experience only its edges, our available wilderness on a crowded island. He's writing from Britain, of course. Uh, it's why we call our coastal towns resorts, despite their air of decay. Perpetually renewing and destroying, the sea proposes a beginning and an ending, an alternative to our landlocked state, an existence to which we are tethered when we might rather be set free. Hoare's lyrical prose here registers a chosen inti intimacy that transforms itself into a dependency. I feel claustrophobic if I am far from the water, he writes. Summer and winter, I plan my time around the tides. The three substantial books of the trilogy merit more engagement than I have time for today, but when Hoare writes in Rising Tide, Falling Star that for me every day is an anxiety in my ways of getting to the water, and when he goes on to wonder, if there were no oceans, would we have our souls? He pinpoints a watery entanglement that combines feeling and form. By his own account, Hoare is not a swimming prodigy like Lynn Cox. Tossed into a municipal pool in Southampton as a child, he splashed and struggled, observing that the far side of the pool was as unattainable as Australia. Hiding his inability to swim throughout his teens, Hoare finally taught himself when he was in his 20s, living alone in London. In learning to support his body in the, in, in the water, he discovered the buoyancy of myself. The practice that would become the mature writer's obsession began as the idea of going out of my depth, allowing something else to take account for my physical presence in the world, being part of it and apart from it at the same time. As he tells it across three books and a half dozen years on Twitter, swimming becomes a way of experiencing the world. The alien element creates buoyancy, which enables art. Which brings me to the last swimmer whose work I'll chronicle this afternoon, the Irish swim artist Vanessa Dawes, who I first met in the surf in California in 2014. If Philip Hoare represents the case of a writer whose late arrival into swimming provided for him a poetics of immersion and buoyancy, Dawes, who makes video art from footage she captures while wearing a GoPro in the water, focuses her work even more directly on immersion. Her most recent adventure was an attempted English Channel swim in September of 2019, just this past month, um, and that's the image that you see here. Um, frustratingly, her swim time was pushed back by almost two weeks due to high winds in, um, in Dover, 
and in the end she ended up being taken back aboard her boat before she reached France after 12 hours of swimming in conditions like the ones you see here because she was being pushed into the Calais, Calais exclusion zone where the ferries enter the port. She was disappointed not to have reached France but still feeling strong after 12 hours in the water. I'll talk today though not about the channel swim but about Dawes' three-week stay in Santa Barbara, uh, California in October 2014. She developed there a project that she calls a psychoswimography, or an exploration of place through the art of swimming. And that's the, the little book you see on the left there. Interacting with local swimmers, including a group that calls themselves the Ocean Ducks, as well as aqua academics gathered for a conference at which she and I both presented our work, Dawes produced a small art book from her experiences that capture her encounter with an unusually warm Pacific and with California sea culture. She organized a joint swim during the conference, during lunchtime on the, on the second day of the conference, that brought the ocean ducks into contact with enthusiastic conference goers, including me. Stacey Alemo, another plenary speaker at the conference who also swam with us, describes the experience in Dawes' book. It felt like an experiment with becoming a medium for art. To be ourselves in the interchange with the ocean, to be aesthetically overcome by the blues and greens of the water. I won't say the event elevated swimming into an art because elevation would place us above the practice. And what is most beautiful to me is to think about how swimming, the immersion of the human in water, releases us from transcendent perspectives, unmoors us as terrestrial creatures, allows us to hover in other ways of being that are perhaps less separate from the substances of the world. I also wrote a short note for the psychosomography book. When land mammals enter the ocean, buoyancy makes things possible. Swimming is flying almost, and I love its singular touch. But what I remember most about Santa Barbara is the second thing, how artistic practice made swimming into community. We were surrounded by swimmers, ocean ducks, surfers, scholars of pre-modern literature and critical theory, all together in the ocean. To be in that translucent alien world, but not alone in it, the gift of art. In thinking about that October in Santa Barbara, I like to imagine that we were all part of a collaboration of which the conference swim was the physical core, a collaboration between ocean and human, salt water and thinking flesh, global fluidity, and individual fragments. We were thinking about the ocean, but not only thinking about it. Sometimes even academics need to be overwhelmed. And I'll close today with two mantras that have surfaced over the years in which I've been thinking about swimmer poetics. The first, experience is better than knowledge, uh, is a quotation from the French mariner Samuel de Champlain. Uh, the second, always allegorize, is an adaptation from Frederick Jameson's The Political Unconscious. These two phrases extend the feeling-form binary with which I began into outward-facing uh, possibilities. And I'll start with Champlain just for a minute. Um, the French explorer Champlain's version of Feel for the Ocean comes from his treatise on seamanship, which was published in 1632. The aphorism sounds better in French, even my very bad French. L'experience passe science. The echoing rhyme of experience and science, or experience and knowledge in the English translation, 
emphasizes the mutual exchange between these terms in a maritime context. Champlain's understanding of experience captures both a human desire to touch things in the world and also the way that thought cannot escape from materiality. Champlain emphasizes that experience exceeds disembodied knowledge in a marginal note that is included in the text, not trust in his own judgment alone. Pure mental abstraction cannot do everything, and the abundant materiality of the sea helps to show why. The pressure of immersive experience and the incessant communication between our bodies and our environment has its own teaching. Experience, which I take to be the sum of a whole series of connected feelings, precedes, though perhaps it does not fully supersede, intellectual analysis. Tension and mutual exchange between experience and knowledge underwrites the development of the blue eco-humanities. The second mantra, always allegorize, plays off of Jameson's famous imperative to always historicize, which is the opening slogan in The Political Unconscious, published in 1981. For Jameson, as a Marxist literary critic, the pluralizing play between the active historicizing, which directs our attention to the past, and the revolutionary insistence that the critic must always labor in the present is precisely the paradoxical point. By shifting to allegory from Jameson's history, in my version of the mantra, I'm emphasizing the importance of form to understanding. Swimming strokes, to my mind, allegorize the experience of terrestrial bodies in an alien environment. Attention to form makes survival possible in that fluid world, at least for a short time. Allegory interprets form as a way to make meaning, at least temporary meaning, in a fluid world. What I really want out of these two swimmer poetics mantras is a means to combine them both together, the overfulness of oceanic experience and the lunging formal grasp toward allegorical understanding. I want the feeling of being in the sea and the comprehension that sometimes flashes out of a well-formed sentence. To be in the moving ocean and to be thinking about it, both at the same time. Experience and allegory, feeling and form, together, wet and surging. Thank you. Um, questions? I think it is, yeah. Is it not on? It is, I think. Okay. Is it? Yeah, right. Uh, thank you so much, Steve. That was a really beautiful talk. Um, and I think my question is, uh, is one that sort of emerged as you were talking and I kept returning to in my, my mind. And I think you answered it, but I'm wondering if you could distill it. And that is what you mean, what you might mean by suggesting that swimming is an art, right? So not a, a, a sport, like a mastery, not a metaphor. Right but an art, and I think the, the sort of second part of my question would be, might swimming also be a politics or an ethics, mm -hmm. sort of given the sort of framing of the talk? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and it like gets right at the place where I'm trying to figure out where to go with this project, and as I sort of gather it together. Um, I definitely, I, and I think part of the tension in it has to do with the different strains of the individual and the collective. Uh, throughout the material that I'm working with and also throughout the sort of tradition of maritime literature. I mean, in some ways, the, it, it's the tension between the, the ship 
which is you know this classical image of the collective thing, you know the ship of state, um, and then the swimmer as individual in Sprawson's kind of obsessively individualist, solitary kind of romantic meditative sense, um, and part of what I found so um, engaging and inspiring about Vanessa Dawes's work in Santa Barbara is this vision of collectivity that she's trying to build, um, which is separate from the you know sometimes quite uh, you know, like one way to understand the role of the ship's captain is as a is literally as a kind of tyrant, right? Like I just got done teaching Moby Dick, but um, there is this other way of understanding a collective, which I think emerges through the practice of swimming, which is one of the things I'm still uh, like I haven't actually built a great language for it yet, but I think that that is the language that will enable me to think about what will happen when the swimmer poetics becomes a kind of swimmer politics. And I think that's a great question, both reminding me of where I need to go still with material. It's probably not that much of a question, but your slide of Murray Rose. Yeah. When I was a schoolboy, mm -hmm. uh, I, I saw Murray Rose. He was swimming in the quarter mile mm -hmm. event. And I felt it's, it's, it's the only time I think I felt very sorry for the other swimmers because even though it was only eight laps, uh -huh. he, 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 he finished 100 metres ahead of ahead of one of the one of the other people in the field and uh, uh, and then later in life that slide at, at North Bondi mm -hmm. uh, I was in the same event as uh. an ocean swim with with him and and he won his age group and uh, probably would have run a couple of other age groups ahead of him as well uh -huh. but um, in the, t in the t as far as timing is concerned and uh, and and as you as you come up the beach you get an electronic Yep. Mm -hmm. What your time was. Anyway, when they when they read out the the results, mm -hmm. who the winner was, and the, and the Murray Rose, and they gave his time. Yep. I thought, hey, he could have dived in and swum the thing again and still beat me. <laughs> <laughs> but mm -hmm. my earliest memory back back as a schoolboy, mm -hmm. uh, this is a carnival. It's a whole afternoon of mm -hmm. swimmers. You know, hundreds of them, or a hundred anyway. Yep. And uh, he alone. Uh, sticks in my mind mm -hmm. is is a mesmerizingly fluid just just the the way he moved through the water it was just gorgeous you just couldn't help but focus on him he he had some very special yeah uh, i i think that that i mean one of the things that's interesting to me about elite swimmers is the well well two particular things. One is the, the thing that, that Leanne Chapton describes, that there's like something just incredibly perfect and, and sort of physically gorgeous about watching a swimmer who can really swim like that. Um, and then the other piece, I didn't cite this, but um, there was a long profile in The New Yorker, I think, about Michael Phelps when he was sort of just about to, to be in one of his first Olympics or maybe his second Olympics. And, and it described him as um, really clumsy on the land. Like he would sort of trip over his feet and fall down, and uh, like he wasn't a very good runner. Um, he, he like could you know he's like you know one of the great athletes in the history of the sport, but it but the you know sort of without the water holding him, he is not coordinated in the same way. And that struck me as just an incredibly like swimming is collaboration with water, right? I mean salt water, fresh water, you know, moving water, still water. Um, so, it's a kind, so it's a very different, I mean, I suppose you could say that like running is collaboration with air and ground, but, but it, is, it strikes me as a different sort of a thing. Um, 
and um, a, maybe a way of thinking about what it's like to live in a hostile environment, which is, which is the, like, that's the big metaphor, I suppose, that I'm going after in this project. Thank you, Steve. That was absolutely beautiful. Um, I can't believe how many places you've swum in Sydney since you've arrived. I don't know when you got here, but I think you named at least four different swims that you've had, so well done. it's been four, yeah. <laughs> um, so my question is about the toenail cutting, I suppose, um, because it strikes me that that would be possible in the Dead Sea. Um, right. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, I've right, been to so the Dead Sea. It's a buoyancy question. Yeah. yeah, and there are photos of people in the Dead Sea reading and... Yep. Um, doing all sorts of performances of what they mm -hmm. can't do in, in other bodies of water. Mm -hmm. So have, have you the different characteristics, characteristics of the water? I guess that salty dead sea, the ocean, fresh water, uh, and it strikes me that Digby cutting his toenails in fresh water would actually be quite difficult, yep. um, and also chlorine, because I've turned up here today with wet hair, mm -hmm. um, and I always feel like I'm cheating when I go to a chlorine pool, but... Um, so it's quite a different experience again in chlorine. So, yeah, just a reflection on the different qualities of the water. Yeah, no, I think that the, the comment about the Dead Sea is really interesting. I hadn't actually thought about that in particular. I mean, certainly I, I you know, <laughs> I both think and experience in the, all, all the different kinds of water. Um, I swim in a chlorine pool in the winter, um, having no better option, um, and, um, you know, swim in salt water all summer at home. And so the, the very different kind of experience, the different kind of buoyancy, the different uh, atmospheric conditions in an indoor pool versus, you know, the, the open, open water. Um, you know, I, I think that one of the interesting, I've never been to a place like the, 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 um, the Dead Sea that is like hyper buoyancy. Um, but it does, like it, what it's, I've seen the pictures also, and it seems to be like if there's a continuum to greater solidity, it would it would it would sort of be on that end of the of the spectrum, um, and I, I guess the other question for me always is the presence of life. You know, there's not a lot of life in the chlorinated pool, indoor pool that I swim in in the winter, but there's quite a lot of life in uh, you know Clavelli Beach where we swam yesterday, um, and so that like when like I much prefer to swim in a place where there are other living creatures, like I don't love the jellyfish, but other than that, um, that that the um, like part of the, I mean, the mental experience is really richer, I think, if you're sharing with another kind of a creature. Um, and so the Dead Sea also is an interesting uh, extreme version of that, right? Because I don't, I mean, the name at least suggests that there's not a lot of sea life in, the, in those waters, although I don't know the, the exact, um, you know, the, the exact sort of biology of that, of that sea. Thanks for the talk. I, I found it interesting. Um, I, I do wonder, though, about your term swimmer poetics, uh -huh. um, partly because I'm aware of some stories and novels about swimming which, which really don't go in that sort of eco-poetics mm -hmm. direction. I mean, John Cheever's story, The Swimmer, um, <laughs> the swimming pools in close to where you live yep. in northeast United States, yep. or Christos uh, Schulkes's Barracuda, which is... Uh, is a young Australian, young gay Australian novelist, and very much a kind of a, a sort of competitive world of mm -hmm. swimming and the all of the the sort of fierce competition that goes along with that. So it's really a sort of yeah. subset of the capitalist, you know, yeah. sporting mm -hmm. world there. Um, the idea of Digby, I mean, I'm not familiar with Digby, but from what you said about him and his interest in fencing and horsemanship yep. as well. Mm -hmm. I would have thought that, that to call him a post-humanist would be a bit of a stretch. 
And I'm just wondering about the, you know, whether or not that term swimmer poetics might need to be nuanced a bit or, mm -hmm. or at least, you know, to, to think about it within a, a sort of eco-poetics where swimming becomes one aspect of that rather than swimmer, swimmer poetics yeah. more generally. Um, yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't suggest that the particular set of swimmers that I have here are, are, have any sort of exclusive claim to the, to the practice, even in a literary context. And, and certainly in the case of John Cheever, with, in, in which the sort of backyard swimming pool becomes an image of, uh, you know, failed suburban masculinity um, uh, in, in that, you know, incredibly rich and wonderful story, um, you know, that's a very different image and a very different kind of water, again, to go back to the question of sort of chlorine versus salt water versus small pools and big big spaces. Um, I, I don't know the book Barracuda, which I'll definitely look for. Um, in the, 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 there's a slightly different question, I think, about the status of the term humanist. Um, and uh, Digby is a humanist in the sort of professional sense. He's a professor at, Saint, at Cambridge. He, uh, you know, writes a bunch of his other books. And we, in fact, actually, he writes this book as well in Latin. Um, he, is a, he is trained in the classical humanism that comes into vogue in England in the 16th century. Um, there is also within the contemporary scholarship on humanism in the 16th and early 17th century an understanding of um, what we now would term a kind of post-human uh, critical position is actually a, a way that, that we in our you know, subfield like to read humanist texts. Uh, one of the things that, you know, understanding even the classical humanist texts of someone like Pico um, or Castiglione as, um, you know, so when Castiglione writes about horsemanship, He's writing about the kind of debt of the human to this other kind of body, this other body which is sort of stronger and more beautiful but relies on the human will to contain and, and control and, and um, organize. Um, so there's a, and maybe it's something that, that in a future version of this, this presentation I might make more explicit, that um, post-humanism is a critical stance that allows us, I think, to um, reinterpret some of the ways that humanist culture in early modern Europe uses especially images of animals. Thank you very much for that um, talk, Steve. Um, you started off with, I believe, Beowulf and uh, Ulysses and the notion of um, swimming being heroic activity. Mm -hmm. And it immediately put me in mind of a, a good friend of mine, Beth French, who's just attempted the Ocean 7 endurance oh. in, without a wetsuit, doing these channels across the world, mm -hmm. wanting to be only female, yeah. actually to do this and it and she hasn't written a book and she probably won't but she has made a film about it yep. and it just strikes me that um you know I'm, I'm kind of wondering what your view is on swimming as heroic activity and also the recording of that activity because we're clearly moving into a new dimension now mm -hmm. and the poetics of what she's done and the film you know there's all sorts of you know sensibilities here there are all sorts of wonderful images and 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 there's some great literary content in there as well. Yeah. I hope it comes to Australia. You guys need to see this movie. It's <laughs> terrific. But it's just that notion of, of heroism and, and swimming, which I'm kind of quite interested in your views on. Yeah, thank you. And I, and I think that, I mean, Sprossen's understanding, you know, Sprossen's subtitle is The Swimmer is Hero, right? So Sprossen, I think, is very uh, explicitly engaging. I mean, he doesn't talk about Beowulf a whole lot, I don't think. Um, but he's very explicitly engaging in that kind of solitary usually masculine, kind of, um, you know, the, 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 
the, the figure who is greater than human by virtue of a particular set of strengths or divine lineage or, you know, et cetera. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm trying to do is to supplement that with, with, as I discussed earlier, this kind of understanding of swimming as a means of environmental engagement and, and kind of building community. Um, but the second, second, what I take to be the second part of that question um, about film and swimming endurance culture in the present, I am absolutely 100% uh, in sympathy with. There's some amazing work being done right now in sort of swim film. I mean, I, I include Vanessa Dawes with her um, GoPro very much in this category of someone who is filming the act of swimming. I mean, she's not quite at the level that you're, you're describing. Um, but there is also a, I mean, there's an interesting, there's a, um, there's a French free diver, um, Guillaume Nery, I think is his name, who, who makes these incredible sort of Fantasia films um, by free divers who go down like 40 and 50 meters and sort of stage plays sort of on the, or dances maybe on the, on the bottom of the sea in the, in the Bahamas, in the, in the deep um, blue holes there. So I think there is, and I haven't done any kind of comprehensive research on this, but the idiom of film is definitely enabling access to a different degree of what would seem sort of super heroic or more than, more than humanly possible uh, experience of the ocean. So yeah, I think that's absolutely a great direction. Thanks a lot. They've really uh, enjoyed that. And um, my question actually brings us back to swimmer poetics because uh, I was actually wondering whether it's, it's quite a good term and this is about language, maybe also about ethics. Um, so I was, I was thinking, um, obviously we're talking about humans in the water and what humans do. And uh, I found um, in, in your paper and, and I think in other writing about the sea, um, one of the things that's going on is an attempt to use poetic language or, or aesthetic language or just um, yeah, beauty or something like that to reach from being a swimmer mm -hmm. to simply being. And, and so what it was getting me to think about was we're talking about humans doing th something yep. in the water. Is there a way of somehow getting what the other creatures are mm -hmm. in the water? Because... Presumably, they're not swimming because they don't speak English. Right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, other types of being, and is that partly what, partly what we're trying to get to? And the word swimmer is very handy for reminding us that we're in exile in that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah that, that's really helpful, Liam. Thank you. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, I was thinking about this really intensely yesterday when I was sort of looking into the eye of that blue groper in, in Clavelli, right? Like, there is this... Um, kind of extraordinary opacity. I mean, it's the opacity of any, like, I mean, there's opacity of other humans as well, but particularly of, you know, creatures that don't use language um, and the, you know, the sort of barriers that exist between land creatures and water creatures. Um, so I think that, um, I mean, as I understand the question, I think you might be, like, there might be another Kind of parallel or overlapping project that would be would be more of a floating experience. Like like there is a way. Um, Oliver Sacks has written about this. Um, 
there, there's a kind of floating experience as well, which is different. I mean, I'm really thinking about the swimmer's experience of trying to, you know, move in the water, you know, to go from one place to another place, um, which is quite different from just trying to sort of keep oneself afloat um, and or even to like the sort of meditative um, uh, experience, uh, you know, like the, 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 you know, the sensor, sensory deprivation tank as it was developed, um, you know, in the, in the, in the heady California days of, of uh, you know, the 60s and Big Sur, um, that there is this way, like there's another kind of, a, maybe more of an ontology than a poetics, um, an understanding of sort of bare being that is associated with that um, non-active form of immersion. Um, and I think you're probably right that it might be worth, it might be important or clarifying to distinguish the project that I'm thinking of, which really has to do with an attempt to, to, to do something, to perform a labor, um, as opposed to a kind of experience of pure being. So yeah, thank you. That's very helpful. Are there any other questions for Steve? Once again, maybe not exactly a question, but uh, the blue groper you speak of, yep. uh, it's illegal for spearfishers yep. to, to shoot a blue groper, so otherwise they probably wouldn't you would have seen he was incredibly uh, unshy. Un I mean, he was he, like we were. There were several of us swimming around him, and uh, someone was there with a with a you know camera and was sort of going down and holding onto the rock and taking very close pictures of him. Consciousness picks up that they're safe. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the other thing that strikes me is, I think the first Australian to win a gold medal in the Olympic Games was in 1908 or thereabouts, uh, who, was, who was a swimmer, and his name was Andrew Charlton called, he had a nickname called Boy, and, and, uh, and people were, all, all the Olympic swimmers, or the people were observing him, mm -hmm. uh, he, changed, he changed the, the whole uh, oh, the, the, the paradigm form of, the, of, yeah, of the freestyle swimming because the Australian crawl, yeah, it, because they identified his swimming technique as the Australian crawl, mm -hmm. and I just wonder that word crawl take takes it's got babyhood yep. uh, mm -hmm. connotations, and uh, so it's it's sort of a, a prim there's a certain primitiveness mm -hmm. to to doing that. Yeah, and my third uh, anecdote is that. Uh, <laughs> um, Quite often when I'd get home late mm -hmm. and I'd have a hard day at work, you know, I'd look up, I've got a clock, a tide clock. Yep. I'd look up the tide and if, if the tide showed it was a high tide at 11 or 12 o'clock at night, I'd think, oh, I'll go down to the river for a swim, to the George's River. Yep. And uh, there's a pool in Oatley Park, no cars, no, just the silence is extraordinary. If there's no moon, mm -hmm. you're just swimming in the utter blackness. And... Uh, um, and when you speak about s swimming as a sort of a lonely uh, undertaking, uh, there was a movie some years ago called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I often thought when I was swimming up and down there in the, n in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the loneliness of the lo long distance yep. swimmer would leave the long distance runner for dead. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, one, one of the things that's it's interesting, if you read Philip Horace, you know, Twitter chronicle of his his swim timing, it's it's you know of course deeply keyed to the moon, 
both because of the changes in the tide and also because one of the things he describes when you know, he usually swims sort of between midnight and five or six in the morning. And so, you know, when there's a full moon, he has a very different kind of Twitter poetics than when there's a, a you know, a, 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 just a, a, a new moon or a, or a half moon or something. Like you can actually sort of trace the relationship between the visual, um, uh, you know, the visual moonlight and the experience of the, you know, swimmer poet. That's it. I'd like to thank you so very much for such a stimulating talk, Steve. And uh, please join me in, in thanking Steve. <laughs>